I'm Silas Farley. I'm a dancer with New York City Ballet, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. This episode will be part two of the conversation with Elizabeth Kendall about Balanchine's youth. What was Balanchine's relationship like with his fellow students at the Imperial Theater School? Before the revolution, his relations with his fellow students were regulated by the rituals of the school. But after the revolution, when the city was in its most agonizing period, then those relations changed. So to be clear about this, we have to realize that after the revolution, the Bolsheviks took over. They didn't really know how to govern. Everything was broken from four years of World War I. There were still some attacks coming from the outside, and there was a blockade that the Allies made of Russia so that the Bolsheviks couldn't keep going. Everybody thought they would last for two seconds, and then something better would happen. But the result was the city had starvation rations and no heat. Now, this is really, really severe, not just for dancers, but for everybody. You know, when you get cold in the winter and you're not dressed warmly enough and you go home and you can finally get warm. There was no going home and finally getting warm. Everything was cold. And a building, a big building like the theater school, was freezing all the time. They finally got some woods for the stoves, and that's how they were heated. They were heated with big stoves in the corners of studios. But pretty much all the time, you were fighting the cold. And if you were a dancer, this is not good for you. It's not good for your body. But on the other hand, dancing is a way of fighting the cold. You can warm up your body when you're dancing. So all of these conditions have to be behind this thought about how Balanchine's relations were with his fellow students. The student body was much smaller. Many people left the city. The city of two million people lost half of its people after the revolution. Many many of them died, starved in their apartments. The school children were kept alive because their, their administrators fought for more rations. So there they were, and they, the students also, in the Bolshevik manner, were given some self-representation. There was a students' committee chosen, and George, of course, was on it, and so was Lydia. And they sort of took care of life. They, they would cut the, the loaves of bread into tiny little pieces. That was the daily ration. But they were in charge of that. And they decided to move out of their big drafty dormitories with the beds lined up. And they moved on each floor into the infirmary, which was a, a small little space. And the priest, who had been a very snobbish priest dug in and helped and hooked up a stove that they could burn wood in the infirmaries and the chimney one went out the window. A pipe went out the window. All over the city, there were these stoves that people were burning books and they were burning furniture. They were burning whatever they could burn to keep warm. Mm -hmm. And the same with food. There was no food. So George was part of a band of kids who had gone through everything together. And they were going through everything every day. They were all cold. They were all starving. They were all learning to dance. And they loved each other with that kind of feverish love when you've got nothing. Mm -hmm. And you're all doing it together, this band of you. 
and you're making dances and you're dancing and you're learning and your mind is on fire and you are totally hungry so your mind is more on fire and one of my favorite things that I read in the archive was one day when the boys they had to go out and do some labor after they learned to dance to get in exchange some strange kind of other food to supplement the rations. They were cleaning out a cellar and they found an old trunk and it was full of chocolate. And none of them had tasted chocolate for like three years. And they brought it back and in the night, they tiptoed into the girls' rooms and they put chocolate on each bed. It makes me cry. It's like a, the boys were being the fairy godmother to the girls. And they woke up and they found chocolate on their bed. They hadn't had any sugar. Um, uh, other people writing about this time say that people were just craving sugar. If they got a little sugar, they would just eat the sugar because it kept you going. So I think there was room in this band of amazingly, this tight band of people learning together with their teachers helping like mad there was room for everybody to be himself or herself. And George was dreamy, terribly gifted, really smart. He enrolled while still in school in the conservatory, so he was studying classical piano at the same time he was studying classical ballet. And everybody was quiet when he practiced, and, ev and everybody helped with the gloves that the, with the fingers cut out so that he could keep practicing. So I think George was surrounded by people who were a real family. Mm. And he really emerged as a leader in the midst of this band. He emerged as a leader. He and Lydia were the people who were the most promising in the school in their generation. One of Mr. B's important teachers in these later years of his training was Shariath. And what was, what was Shariath's influence on Balaji? Shariath's influence must have been immense because Shariath was, Shariath is a great character. He's like a Dr. Capelius or somebody even more wise. Shiraev was the grandson of Puni, one of the Italian composers of the theater. He made some scores for the ballets. And Shiraev was also very trusted by Petipa, a real assistant to Petipa. But Shiraev was also a, a sign of genius because before the revolution, way back in around 1910 or, or 10 or 11, Shiraev realized that a movie camera could be amazing for dance. Shariaf bought, God knows how he found the money, a movie camera and asked the Royal, the, the, the Imperial Theater, if he could film dancers like Pavlova, like Krasavina, like Shisinska. And they said, no, that's the art for the people. That's not for us. We're, we're much above that. But Shariaf instead used the movie camera to recreate all the variations by making puppets. And he filmed them frame by frame. They were like animations of the variations. Wow. And Shariaf had also been the original hoop dance Her, soloist the in the dance. Nutcracker. Shariaf was a great character dancer. Shariaf was also one of those who went abroad and then came back after the revolution. And he, in fact, created the character curriculum of the school. And could you describe for our listeners what character dance is and how it compares to classical ballet training? Character dance is anything that's folk dance related that has to do with 
dancing that you do in real life, but theatricalized. But it's not like a, a formal pas de deux. It's not like a classical variation. It's, you know, when the mazurka comes in or the chardash or the, uh, the, the people who give the color, the peasants dancing or anybody dancing, dancing dances, like the dancing within the dancing. Like the real people within the exalted ballet dance scene. Yes, although the real people, when you know a Soviet dancer, Soviet dancers are often very scornful of the way we do character dancing because there is an aristocratic mazurka and then there's a people's mazurka and there's a world of difference between those two that we don't hear or we're not sensitive to in America. And Balanchine was a great character dancer. Oh, Balanchine was a wonderful character dancer. Character also serves as the umbrella to describe the, the characters in any story ballet who aren't the noble ones. They're any, you know, any jester, any magician, any strange villager, village mayor, or the Dr. Capelius, who's the weird guy in the village who makes these dolls. So Balanchine was a person who, in terms of dancing, he didn't make himself a glorified being to present to the audience. He hid inside another character. And I believe that Balanchine was an amazing dancer. And any interview of dancers who worked with Balanchine, they will tell you about his showing you the part. Violette said, I've never seen a better swan queen. Than Mr. B? Than Mr. B. And dancing that role of the hoop dance, which we now call candy canes in Nutcracker, was one of Balanchine's really star turns as a dancer when he joined the company. And it's sweet because he had learned that dance from Shariah, who had been the original in the 1892 production of Nutcracker. And then when Mr. B got around to setting his own Nutcracker in 1954, he lifted that exact choreography that Shariah had taught him, that he had danced, and gave it to Robert Barnett. And it's still part of our Nutcracker to this day. Could you talk with us a little bit about Balanchine's performing career after his graduation? My source for knowing about Balanchine's performing career is really his classmate, Mikhail Mikhailovich. Mikhailov tells about there's this episode where Yelizaveta Gert invited him to partner her because her other younger partner was ill in an excerpt from Swan Lake that she was performing in the famous Pavlovsk Summer Theater. And Balanchine missed the train. I think this story is known to anybody who's ever read a biography. He missed the train. It's told to show how heroic he was, and he was heroic. He borrowed a bicycle. He pedaled 25 kilometers. Keep in mind that he had already compromised lungs. And he made it on stage. He didn't make it to be one of the hunters in the first act, but he made it on stage for the second act to partner the Swan Queen. But what kind of a state are you in after you've pedaled 25 kilometers and you have TB in your lung already? So Mikhailov thinks that this failure to be the to break through to be the partner of the revered ballerina was part of what drove him a little bit more towards choreography and away from, from performing. And the peers who wrote memoirs who remember that performance in the spring of 1922, less than a year after it had been in the theater, 
they remember it is a miraculous performance where he just, it's all the passion of who he was was in that performance when he was jumping with the hoop. And they felt it was almost tragic. Mm -hmm. It was like his goodbye to that dream of being a virtuosic dancer. Mm. Mr. Balanchine started choreographing quite young. And how did that come about? I think it probably came about because Oblakov, the enlightened head of the school who was so cultured, he really wanted his school to be able to produce the choreographers of the future. So Balanchine knew this, and Oblakov would bring him some music. And he did this not only for George. He would like, like be a producer for students choreographing. And he brought George some violin and piano sonata by Anton Rubinstein. And George choreographed it, and he called it La Nuit, The Night. And what in that very first piece is a seed of his later choreography? A guy wanting a woman. I think choreography and adolescence hit him at the same time, and they were really intertwined. Hmm. Elizabeth, who were the young Balanchine's creative influences? So Silas, of course, his body knew everything that he danced. And that has that's a range of Petipa ballets and Fokine ballets, which were in the repertory. He once said this wonderful thing, Fokine invented not straight lines. Petipa is all about geometry, and Fokine is all about non-geometry. You can call Petipa and Fokine like seminal influences. But there were lots of always voices about people trying to renew ballet. So the real other influence in the post-revolutionary time that was right there that Balanchine worked with was Fyodor Lopukhov. Lopukhov was the first one who tried to get deep into the roots of ballet as an art, the way the theater had been doing for a long time by exploring Commedia dell'arte and early crude theater that was spontaneous from the people. There wasn't exactly ballet that was spontaneous from the people, so Lopukhov decided to use ballet's qualities of energy in a scientific way, and he made this work, which was badly received, but to put it together must have been thrilling, and he had a corps of volunteers led by George and his friends who worked on it with him, and George i.e. Balanchine and his friends kept pushing Lopukhov, who was older but pretty revolutionary in his own way, to be more revolutionary, to try things that had never been tried, like lying down on stage, like two women partnering each other, a, a human spiral at the end. These are all things that have to do with the music and patterns of energy. And so this was a big influence on Balanchine to see what you could, that you could get the narrative implications out of the steps and look at them as just pieces of energy. That Lopukhov work was Tan Symphonia, Dance Symphony, and it was set to Beethoven's Fourth Symphony.
there was another experimental choreographer in Moscow called uh, Kasyan Golozovsky. And people cite him as a major influence on Balanchine, and probably he was, but not in the very first pieces that Balanchine did, because nobody was traveling then, and there was no exchange between Moscow and Petersburg until a little bit later. Elizabeth, could you tell us a little bit about the Young Ballet, a company that Mr. Balanchine led while he was still a dancer with the main company in St. Petersburg? The Mm. Young Ballet arose out of the frustration of his generation who'd graduated from the school with the highest ideals in the world. Ballet is a spiritual force. Ballet can change the world for the better. And during the time after the revolution starting in 1921, Lenin had to save the Bolshevik government by letting capitalism come back. So Lenin made up the plan called the NEP, the New Economic Policy. And that was when capitalism came back with a vengeance in a weird way. So you had Bolsheviks who believed in the people having a chance at last at a wonderful life. And here were these uh, new people making money because they were allowed because otherwise nobody would have survived. So the NEP was a very different period from the time when Balanchine was finishing school. But when he was finishing school, communism was an ideal. Bolshevism, communism, it's kind of the same thing. It was an ideal for a utopia. And ballet can be a part of this purity, this new kind of life where people are better than they were. But after the NEP began, which is exactly the time when Balanchine graduated from the school, the theater had much less subsidy because it had to make its own money. Everybody was on their own. And this was the new atmosphere. That's why Balanchine did so many cabaret shows and performing and and choreographing because the dancers didn't have enough salaries. They had to perform outside and get paid with, with food and trades or a little money or however they were paid, however the barter system or the new NEP economy worked. It, it was crazy. There were no rations, and then and suddenly there was money, and then there wasn't money, and it was very a very crazy time. But Balanchine's generation, raised on these ideals, saw it was happening. There were spoofs of the classics, and there were operetta took over the city, and nobody was interested in classical ballet anymore. They decided they had to do something because the theater wasn't doing something to make the ballet of the future. And they decided to start in their own modest way by making a company. And the beauty of the young ballet was it wasn't just dancers, that there were scenic, some young scenic artists who fell in love with the ballet when they realized they could go backstage and no dancers. And so it was a mix of people in the different arts who made this company. But George had to be the director because he had the most knowledge about how to move people around, how to coach them in a variation. So that's what he did. And the the Young Ballet first performed um, by dancing some of the old variations, which wouldn't be given to young dancers because they were solos and pas de deux, but the young dancers claimed them. Balanchine invited them to say which variations they liked. Okay, you can dance that which was a real break with precedent. That ritual, it's like, no, you wait for years to have a chance at that part. No, they could dance them. And then there was some new pieces that Balanchine made, little variations, and then he made a group piece called um, 
Marche funèbre. Marche funèbre, set to Chopin's funeral march. Dum da 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 da. Not the most choreographic, invitational music, but it was everywhere then, the, the funeral march. And he made this beautiful sort of dreamlike ballet with an angel and a corpse and people transfigured. Some of the layers of the young ballet's work really prefigure aspects of Balanchine's later work here in the States and with New York City Ballet, particularly the idea of young dancers being given the opportunity to dance major roles. And it makes me think about Lincoln Kirstein's description of his and Balanchine's company as a core of interchangeable soloists, where there's a lot of agency and opportunity across ranks. And also the idea that the dancers had a real allegiance to Balanchine. You quote in your book how the dancers said, we really want to dance. We will do everything George finds necessary. And in talking with different people who worked with Mr. B through the years at City Ballet, there was that similar sense of, you know, he's the master choreographer. He's got this huge vision. It's a privilege to participate in that vision. And basically we'll go with him wherever that imagination leads. At the time when all these young dancers banded together to make the young ballet and realized that George was sort of the natural leader. They trusted him not because he said, well, this is a new kind of company, you got to trust me. They trusted him because they knew him from the school and he'd been kind to people. He was known as somebody who was kind, especially to the younger dancers. And maybe he was remembering when Isayenko, his schoolmaster, and... Andrianov, his teacher, were kind to him when he was a lost little boy. But he was Kostrovitskaya, who was, her name is Vera Kostrovitskaya. She was a younger student. She was one of my main archival sources. And she remembers when she was uh, first year and very lonely because her grandmother was a concert pianist and she terribly missed her home. And she heard Balanchine play, practicing the piano and she listened to him every night. I think the young ballet is important in Balanchine's life because it modeled what a company could be without his knowledge. It was way early because it was dedicated to things that weren't commercial. In fact, not only did Balanchine listen to the young dancers about what they wanted to dance and maybe help them compose some of their own dances, but he was interested in using whatever income they got from performing in the city to distribute according to who needed the money most. So it was sort of a socialist enterprise, a little mini Bolshevik state, but in the best utopian sense. There was that sense that you were doing this work in the art of ballet for reasons that weren't self-advancing, they weren't narcissistic, they weren't commercial. It had to do with the a, a higher purpose of the art. What were the circumstances under which Mr. B left Russia in 1924? The years in St. Petersburg, which was then Petrograd, it had been changed from a German-sounding name during World War I into the Russian translation. Petrograd is literally Peter's city in Russian. So the situation was always changing, and uh, there was a big change that happened in 1924, uh, in January of 1924, which is Lenin, the mastermind of the revolution, died. He, he just wore himself out and died of a stroke and complications. And 
I think the climate began to change. Pe people became much warier of what was going to happen, who was going to have the power. And Balanchine's way of getting out is really kind of mysterious because it has to do with a guy called Vladimir Dmitriev, who was a former singer in the Mariinsky, but then apparently he lost his voice, and so he went to work in one of the state sanctions casinos. There were three in Petrograd. And he was a croupier. He ran one of the gaming tables, which meant that he collected a lot of cash, which probably meant he was connected to the secret police, which was called the Cheka in those days. So Dmitriev decided to take a group of singers and dancers out on a summer tour and with some of the money that he'd amassed. And he invited Balanchine, and he wanted Ashura Danilova, and he wanted Lydia Ivanova, and he had to take Balanchine's wife, Tamara Jiva, because they were married by then, and uh, one more guy to partner the women, named Nikolai Yefimov. And they joined on the tour, and of course, uh, Dmitriev paid for their boat passage. They went to Berlin in July of 1924, when the dancers were all 20. The singers were older, and they got permission only for a summer tour, but they never went back. Hmm. Did Balanchine realize that he was leaving for good at that time? That's not clear. There are letters, one from Danilova and one from Balanchine and Yefimov, asking that their places be held, that they say they're learning so much in the West that they can bring back this knowledge when they come back to Russia. So we don't know. It's like hedging your bets. Mm. And he didn't end up going back till 1962. Right. Wow. Lydia Ivanova was such a close friend of Balanchine's and classmate through all these years and in joining the company in St. Petersburg together. And she was going to go on that journey with Mr. B in 1924 to leave Russia. And talk a little bit more about her role in Balanchine's life. Lydia Ivanova was a a striking character. She was noticed already when she was a student by the ballet community of Petrograd as somebody to really watch. There was a, a Volinsky, a, a, an important critic, and uh, invited her to come see him and see, like, what can you do? And she covered the room in two leaps and everyone went, <gasps> she had a huge leap. She had a great deal of power in her feet and legs. But she was also very, very musical. And I think she was a rebel at heart, and she was making, by instinct, a new way to be a ballerina that matched something about the ideals of the revolution at their best. I think she was much more vivid, much more connected to the audience, not like Shusinska, an imperial ballerina, whose pride was her main characteristic, along with her great technique. Lydia was warm and impulsive. She had a huge amount of reach into the audience, and I think a spiritual quality, because everybody who's, who went to remember her years later, they wrote about Lydia like she was some kind of a savior of ballet. Lydia was some something that people hadn't seen. She was brilliant technically but an emotional ballerina and a woman not a wraith not a sylph not a willy she 
filled those parts with a kind of impetuous passion, like she was making up the steps. That's always what you feel when you see a great dancer, that the dancer is experiencing the steps in a fresh way, and you're getting this double experience, your own and the dancer's experience. And I think she was like that. Elizabeth, you're currently working on a new book on Balanchine. What is its focus, and how does it relate to your first book on Balanchine? For my sins, I am working on a new book about Balanchine. Um, I want it to be pretty short. I want it to be vivid, and I want it to be informal. My aim was to think, you know, I'd done all this research in, in Russia and Finland and Georgia about eight years' worth, and I wanted to make the life as a whole because we in America tend to focus on the American Balanchine because it's the part that's available to us. But I went back and tried to find the other Balanchine. I didn't even get to Europe in this first book, but the European Balanchine fascinates me. And I wanted to make the, all the Balanchines come together into one man, which is really hard to do, Silas, I must say. But um, I'm finding my way to do it as I go. Uh, it's about to be put under contract. Um, and I've called it uh, something that he said, I am silence. That's a quote from Mr. B. Meditations on the life of George Balanchine. And I've put the meditations in because I want to stop and tell the readers what I'm thinking or what I'm, what my impression is if I don't know. And also I'm going to write different little letters to Balanchine when it's confusing what was going on. I will ask him in a letter, Dear Georgi Militonovich, what can you tell me about this? <laughs> and I think it's a way to make it a little bit fun and playful. And God knows we all need playfulness in the arts. And to tell the story in a way that isn't a list of all, he made these ballets and he did these things and he did this for television and he did this for the stage. And then it's just a list. A, a biography is a really hard thing to do because you have to be intrusive to, to make some guesses about what was happening. And you have to be entertaining enough so that it, you're just not listing the accomplishments like a resume. But bringing his whole life to life. I want the readers to get a sense of him physically, and it's really hard to do that. Well, Godspeed with that task. I'm Thank certainly you. looking forward to reading it when it comes out. Well, I may need your help at certain <laughs> points. Because you know the steps. Some of them. <laughs> when Balanchine was still a young man in Russia, he wrote an acrostic poem about his life and his destiny. And I thought that that would be a fitting way to close. Yes, there is this little acrostic. It's not clear when he wrote it. And he had a name with a lot of syllables. And so he made up some rhymes. Uh, there's kind of sloppy because some of them don't rhyme. But he made up a line for each syllable in his name. And the end of that line, the last syllable, equaled the syllable in the name. So um, Balanchavadze, upon me smiles fate. So it would have been um, fate in Russian is sudba, and the ba at the end of sudba, fate, is ba for balanchavadze. And each line 
goes with a sort of rhyme. Upon me smiles fate. My lot in life is already given. Don, lan, they rhyme. Balan. To success, I see the keys. Kluchi is keys. Balanchi. I will not now turn back. Nazat. Balanchivad. In spite of tempest and thunder. So thunder is groze. So balanchivad ze. I love that. Upon me smiles fate. My lot in life is already given. To success I see the keys. I will not now turn back in spite of tempest and thunder. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your scholarship and your passion about Mr. Balanchine with us. And I, and I know so many of the listeners, look forward to reading your forthcoming book. Thank you. Silas, you are a a demon, a brilliant listener. And this is a rare quality, and I deeply appreciate it. And it's an honor to talk to you. And I do it anytime. (laughs) Thank you so much. It really is remarkable to take stock of these formative years of Balanchine's life and to track the connections between his youth and his later life here in New York. His School of American Ballet was modeled after the Imperial Theater School, complete with dormitories and the opportunity for the students to perform in professional productions. His New York City Ballet had the philosophy of the young ballet on the scale of the Imperial Ballet Company. And the starving teenager became the consummate chef, who loved to serve lavish recipes to the guests in his home and rich ballets to the guests in his theater. And all of this was tied together with Mr. Balanchine's sense of destiny that he articulated in that acrostic poem. He felt called to ballet, and he never deviated from that calling. If you'd like to go even deeper into an exploration of Balanchine's youth, please consult the books that can be found in the reading list in the notes for this podcast episode. And I know that this episode airs during the week of both Christmas and the start of Hanukkah this year. So on behalf of all of us here at New York City Ballet, I wish you and yours a joyful holiday season and a happy new year. To stay up to date on all City Ballet podcast episode releases, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. All of us here at City Ballet hope to see you soon in the theater. So head over to nycballet.com to have a look at the season. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll join me again to hear the dance.